Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of eSharp magazine. Go to eSharp.eu for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Brad Smith. Brad Smith is the president of Microsoft. Brad, we're going to talk a lot about TechLash this morning, this idea that there's a huge backlash, or certainly a growing backlash against certain tech companies uh, from different directions, not just from government, from, from the public at large on a, on a wide variety of issues. We can't cover everything in our this podcast, but let's try and home in on two or three issues, okay. uh, starting with data. Um, the, the, the European General Data Protection Regulation is now a matter of law. I know there's still issues about implementation and compliance, a lot of confusion out there about uh, what it means to be fully compliant with the GDPR. But as, as far as you're concerned, are there still bigger concerns out there that companies, especially in the tech sector, are still not sufficiently sensitive to the use they make of people's data? I think fundamentally 2018 was a watershed year for the protection of privacy. It certainly started with the implementation date last May 25th uh, for GDPR. Uh, given the complexity of the regulation, people you know, across the tech sector or in business more broadly are still internalizing it to some degree. Um, but a huge amount of work has been done, uh, and I think it's already changed the face of privacy protection in a very positive way. Uh, Microsoft really is the only tech company that decided last year that we would extend the rights to data subjects under the GDPR, not just to our customers in Europe, but to all of our customers worldwide. And one of the things we found was that there were even more Americans than Europeans that wanted to use their rights. And I think that is the second thing that is so interesting about 2018 and where we are today. 2018 was the year that privacy jumped the Atlantic. Uh, specifically in California. And not only did California pass the most sweeping privacy law in the history of the United States, but it did so for one reason and one reason only, because signatures had been gathered to put it on the ballot so that the public could vote for it in November. And what people recognized, even across the tech sector, was that the public was almost certain to vote in favor of it. So we're seeing privacy protection continue to spread. We're seeing it continue to deepen. Uh, and I think the notion that we saw a decade ago by some in the tech sector that said, hey, privacy is dead, get over it. Guess what? It's not dead. People care about it. It's not going to die. Doesn't mean that we know how it's going to be protected a decade from now. There's lots of questions ahead of, a, ahead of us. Uh, but I think the protection of privacy is alive, well, and growing up. And therefore, whether it's on the U.S. side of the Atlantic or this side of the Atlantic in Europe, um, companies buy into the fact that they have to do more to, to, to show their customers uh, the, how they are using the data that they, they depend on. That's really the essence of much of the GDPR's protection. Uh, this notion of increased transparency so that consumers have more rights to know what com what data a company has about them, how the data is being used. People have the, uh, the right to correct it, to delete it, to move it to another provider. Uh, you know, it is, I think it's fair to say, something of a Magna Carta for data for people. Uh, so I think it's extremely important, but I don't think it's the last word either. Uh, certainly as more data gets collected, as it gets used in more ways, new questions are emerging. Um, there are normative rules that go beyond notice and consent in some areas where data is sensitive, like healthcare or financial services. Uh, and I think we'll see more discussions about whether there is a need for more rules that go beyond notice and consent. And 
Europe may again be the place where much of that uh, debate takes place first. But as the GDPR reflects where Europe leads, ultimately, there is a lot of pressure for the rest of the world to follow. Okay, let's move then on to the disinformation, especially in the context of, of election campaigns, elections. As you know, in Europe this year, there are, like any year probably, but certainly this year, a whole raft of elections at the national level, presidential elections, uh, national elections, etc., as well as the European Parliament elections at the end of uh, May, as you know. What is, how concerned should the electorate be about, about tampering and interference with their elections? I think it's a real concern. Uh, I think that there are three kinds of problems that we all need to worry about across Europe and really in democratic societies around the world. The first is the practice that we've seen certainly since 2016, where there is hacking into the emails, for example, of political candidates, and then the release of those emails and sometimes the release of fraudulent fake emails, all designed to influence the course of an election. The second problem are these disinformation campaigns on social media platforms. Those are now well documented and they have continued uh, since 2016 and they've spread to other countries as well. And the third problem is one that we really haven't seen come to fruition, thankfully so far, but it is potentially the most serious problem of all. And that would be any potential tampering with voting, voting systems, voting results. Uh, We've seen some exploratory forays on the nation state front into that space. So across the board, I think we need to be vigilant. We as a company are taking more steps. We have our Protecting Democracy uh, program that is focused on all three of these problems. Other tech companies are taking important steps. But I think the world needs to do more. The democratic countries of the world need to do more. Uh, We need to build stronger international uh, rules Uh, We were particularly encouraged by the Paris call that was led by the Macron government last November. Uh, The Paris call for trust and security in cyberspace has now been signed by over 450 signatories, including roughly 60 governments around the world. Um, This is a broad problem. It, too, is not going away. We are going to need innovation. Uh, We're going to need multi-stakeholder action. Uh, We are going to need governments that stand up to put pressure on other countries that are really threatening democracy around the world. Well, obviously, you you, talk, you, you, rep, you like the idea of obviously more international cooperation, even regulation, maybe, if that's what what's required. But as you know, the critics of the tech sector say that the tech industry is is as much part of the problem as part of the solution. How, how, how much are you, do you think you're doing the tech sector writ large, not just Microsoft, to address that? To, to, you know, people have genuine concerns. I think the tech sector is taking new steps. It is doing more, and I think that's good. I think the bigger question is, is it doing enough? Well, given the nature of the problem, given its seriousness, I think we all need to keep finding ways to do more. Um, But I also think it's uh, an area where we're going to need new laws. I think the nature of those new laws are not yet altogether clear. Uh, There are some interesting proposals emerging. Um, I'm particularly intrigued by some in the United States, by Senator Mark Warner, who you know, his focus not on whether information is true or false, but on ensuring that the public knows who is speaking um, so that people are not being deceived into thinking that someone who is speaking when they're not or even knowing when a human being is speaking and when information is being spread by bots and machines and the like. 
interestingly, this NewsGuard initiative, uh, more in the private sector, is adopting a similar approach. Could you explain NewsGuard a bit? NewsGuard is interesting. Uh, you know, it, it is uh, you know, put together by you know, two leading Americans, one uh, a liberal, the other a conservative, both experienced in journalism. Uh, and, and what it's designed to do is let people know, for example, when you're looking at the results on a from a search engine on a search page, uh, there's a green icon if it comes from a, a reputable news site. Uh, there's a red icon if it is a site that has been determined to be a, a source of disinformation. And, you know, it's nonpartisan. It, it crosses the political spectrum, I think, broadly in an appropriate way. But it is designed to put people on their guard. And I, I think that is an example of the kinds of innovations that the world needs. And whether it's that or something similar or a variety of things, um, you know, we need more answers to some very difficult questions. Are you hinting there's a kind of shared responsibility ultimately between governments and international organizations with regulations on the one hand, between uh, the, the tech sector, obviously, and then last but not least, the individual? I do think it's right to say there is a shared responsibility. Um, I think one should probably do more than hint about it. Right. Uh, and I think the way you put it, Paul, is actually very apt. Um, I believe it requires leadership and action by governments. I believe it requires leadership and action by companies. But it's a good reminder that at the end of the day, democracy is reliant on every individual citizen. Uh, now, you never have a world where every individual citizen actually does his or her part completely, um, but um, you can't protect a democratic country unless citizens are well-informed and the citizenry is really acting in a, in, in a unified way. Okay. Let's move on then to artificial intelligence. Um, everybody's talking about AI these days, seems to me. Um, I'm not quite sure how there are different stages of development of AI, clearly, and some, you know, embryonic phases and then more developed phases. Um, I think it would, from my point of view, it would be helpful at some point that the, the people involved in AI, producing the technology behind AI, uh, maybe spent more time explaining the benefits rather than just, you know, predicting maybe potential future benefits, but actual concrete examples. But putting that to one side briefly, as you, as you know much better than I do, there are huge ethical concerns around AI. Uh, to what extent are these, uh, how grounded are, how justified are these sort of ethical concerns? Well, fundamentally, one of the things that artificial intelligence does potentially is to empower machines to make decisions that have always been made by human beings. So when you think about it that way, by definition, Every ethical question in the history of humanity is suddenly potentially an ethical question for computers as well. And I do think this is starting to unfold in a real world way. Uh, and it's therefore very important. I think one has to start by defining certain ethical principles. That's what we've sought to do. We certainly don't have any monopoly on this. But, you know, we have said it's, it's, it's very important for AI-based systems to be uh, you know, focused on uh, you know, avoiding bias, on being accessible to people, on protecting privacy and security, being reliable and safe, that fundamentally there's two foundational principles on which everything else relies. One is transparency, so the public knows how AI systems work, and ultimately accountability. I mean, I think one of the really important issues for our generation is ensuring that computers 
remain accountable to people and the people who design these computers remain accountable to the public as a whole. So you know, we started by thinking about broad principles, a set of principles, and now we're dealing with real world controversies. How should facial recognition work? How should AI be used in weapon systems in the military? Those are just two early examples of what I think will be some perhaps small panoply of issues that will emerge over the next decade. Well, you know the argument, the, not just the ethical implications, aspects of AI, but also the impact of AI on the economy and by extension on society. You know, the, there's a very strong view out there that AI will, quote unquote, kill jobs and uh, uh, which will not be replaced. So people have genuine concerns beyond ethical considerations that uh, thanks to AI or the back of AI, they're going to be out of a job. How, what can a company like yours and the tech sector writ large do to, 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 to respond to those concerns? I think that we have to first and foremost, but not exclusively, uh, engage in the public discussion and talk through the issues and uh, help address what needs to be done. Uh, AI first will change many jobs, um, just as computing has changed many jobs. There's much more digital content to many more jobs than was the case, say, 20 or 30 years ago. Second, AI will replace some jobs. It will replace certain tasks. In some cases, it may replace entire jobs, just as computers have over the last 30 or 40 years. And then third, it will create jobs because technology always does create jobs as well. There will be people who will create this technology. There will be people who will use this technology in new ways. Uh, and the great imponderable uh, is whether there will be more jobs created or impacted or destroyed. And it's impossible to know, although many people may say that they can make a prediction, but the truth is only time will tell. We need to be prepared. Uh, I think part of what we need to be prepared to do is to help equip people with the skills needed for new jobs, uh, the jobs that will change or the jobs that will be created. Um, Certainly more digital skills are going to be necessary. More AI-based skills um, are, are going to be important. And I think it's also uh, important to recognize that because of the nature of the ethical issues, uh, there are going to be AI-oriented jobs that require not only, say, a background in science or math or computer science, but I think there's also going to be some resurgence of need for people with a background in the humanities or in the social sciences, uh, because given the uh, impact uh, and the ethical issues, you know, we need a new generation of people that can bring both, say, scientific and quantitative and data-oriented skills together with these broader social science and humanities-based uh, skills. And I think all of this has many implications for education around the world. Well, it was interesting when you were talking about data privacy and also disinformation. You seem very open, almost to be encouraging uh, new rules, uh, especially in the U.S., but also in Europe, uh, to address those particular uh, issues, uh, which is not, not normally what you expect from companies who try to resist rules, maybe. Uh, in the case of AI, do you see uh, an urgent and pressing need now for more, more regulation, for a more clear, coherent regulatory framework within which to conduct AI? Or is, are we still too early in the game to, to go down that route for fear of blocking you know, invention and development? I think we do need new laws and regulations. We have to be careful that we don't legislate ahead of our understanding of these technologies and problems. 
But I think that government needs to keep keep pace with this technology. It's not today. So governments are going to need to move faster. One of the areas that we've identified is facial recognition. I think facial recognition is ready for a degree of law and regulation. Uh, in Europe, it's already regulated to a significant degree by GDPR because of all the data that's processed that is used to identify individuals. But I think there's issues around risks of bias and discrimination that require new law. I, I think that facial recognition potentially could be used in ways that would put at fundamental risk people's basic democratic freedoms. And the best way to protect against those risks is, again, through laws that will govern when and how law enforcement can, for example, use ubiquitous facial recognition for, say, ongoing monitoring of people. Um, so as, as this unfolds, as new issues are identified, I think we're going to be better served if we address them sooner rather than later. And all of this is going to require broader public discussion. Okay. Let's maybe finish off, Brad, by broadening the discussion a bit, uh, zooming out rather than zooming into the broad trade agenda, globalization, protectionism, the transatlantic uh, agenda, as it were, which is, let's be br blunt, is coming under strain at the moment, has been for a couple of years for obvious reasons. I mean, how how concerned are you or are the, or the views that the, the transatlantic agenda is, a relationship is, is suffering? Are they premature? People are being too negative? Uh, what concerns do you have, if any, about the, the current state of health of the transatlantic relationship? I think on the one hand, the transatlantic relationship and the transatlantic trade relationship you know, represent one of the fundamental cornerstones for the world, for the world economy and for the well-being of the world. Uh, it's a strong relationship. It doesn't mean it's not under stress. Uh, I think the aspect that probably gives me the most pause is the stress on the great institutions that were built when World, world War II ended. Um, you know, the great economic institutions, the whole Bretton Woods system, um, you know, the trade rules, the monetary rules. Um, it's easy to be critical and some criticism is even justified. But these institutions have played an extraordinary role in helping to ensure, you know, seven decades of peace and prosperity. It's a good time to step back and ask where they need to be strengthened. And there's no yeah, you know, I think uh, harm in, in being somewhat critical and asking where they can be made to work better. But I hope that the approach is on making them work better and building on you know something of great importance rather than just forgetting their foundational role for two generations of people. Maybe a final question then, Brad. I know traditionally companies, uh, I'm not sure about Microsoft, have uh, quite reluctant to get involved in, in politics, as it were, because they think it's not their job. Uh, it's, it's That's for governments to do. Uh, but I just wonder, in the specific context of the transatlantic agenda, given that, as we speak, the U.S. on the one hand and the EU, European Union on the other have a slightly different vision, should we say, what a, a trade agenda should look like. Uh, what what extent is there a, a role, leadership role, if you like, for companies to, to play, to, to keep that relationship alive, notwithstanding whatever governments and organizations are doing uh, alongside that? I think we have to be constructive forces for good, at least to the best of our ability to see the potential to do some good. 
yeah, I, I think it's always important for companies to try to steer clear of what I would describe as more partisan uh, issues, you know, certainly uh, avoid contributing to polarization and the like. Um, we have to remember that we operate in many countries and we need to adapt in many instances uh, you know, to, you know, you know, what our customers need from us. And especially in the technology sector, we have such a, a profound responsibility, in my view, to protect the, uh, the personal information uh, of our customers. But all that being said, we see the world because we operate around the world. And I think we have something of a responsibility to at least share what we're seeing, to share what we're learning, and to be a voice for progress. Um, people always have different visions of progress, but progress requires that people work together. And I think one of the challenges in the world today is it's harder for democratic governments to make decisions at times. It's harder for countries to work together. Uh, and I think this is a moment in time where uh, I hope that companies can be a voice encouraging uh, paths that find some common solutions. Okay, we have to leave it there. Brad Smith, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.